News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. It's Thursday, November 12th when we're recording this, and my name is Alex Brooklyn, your friendly neighborhood podcast producer. This week in New York News, Mayor Bill de Blasio introduced a pilot program in which 911 calls for or about persons with mental illness would be met with teams of professionals and possibly EMTs instead of police. I say possibly because we know very little about the progressive pilot program, which will be administered as a Thrive initiative. Thrive is the city's mental health program that the mayor's wife, Sherlane, is in charge of. It will be tested in only a few zip codes, but there were no details released about what zip codes or how these professionals would engage with the mentally ill. One can only hope that NYC's first flirtation with such a bold initiative doesn't get lost in the Thrive Nebula. Governor Andrew Cuomo, in anticipation of a second wave, shuttered bars, restaurants, and gyms starting at 10 p.m. every day. He also says that residential gatherings should be capped at 10 people. This doesn't sit too well with one of our guests this week, Joe Borelli, who says he will have 11 people at his holiday dinner. Harry Siegel and I chat with Mr. Borelli, councilman of NYC's 51st district in Staten Island and South Brooklyn zone councilman Justin Brannon of the 43rd district. We talk with them about the new tolls on the Veranzano, the need for more data-driven decisions coming out of City Hall to win over hearts and minds, and Staten Island's new yellow zone status with the rising number of COVID cases in the borough. So we are joined by the uh, JBs, Justin Brannan and Joe Borelli. Uh, pass the peas, give me some more, et cetera. I, I actually wanted to have them on when fellow podcaster and sometimes FAQ guest Ben Max was, was riffing about the Veranzano Bridge. And now it's going to have, starting in December, two-way tolls again, which is a good, weird, interesting history because the feds stepped in, like Reagan era, and made this the only crossing, I believe, in the country that by federal law only had this one-way toll. And that had a lot of weird impacts. It's a reason why Canal Street is choked with uh, trucks all the time, because it was a way of getting around that very expensive toll, because it was a one-way one. And I figured having a, a lawmaker from Brooklyn and a lawmaker from Staten Island on would be fun here. So, Joe, do you want to uh, start us off? Welcome to the pod. Uh, what do you think of this? Well, th- thank you. First of all, I like your, your, your little rhyme with JBs. It was a little, it was a little Cockney London East End thing going. I, I definitely appreciate that. So my take on this starts in 1871 with a guy named Andrew Haswell Green, who uh, first started a commission to look at the viability of Staten Island joining the rest of the city. He saw vacant properties uh, for factories. He saw bulkhead for for, for potential port developments. He saw a rail link, the only rail link from New York to New Jersey at the time. uh, And he set his sights on it. 1898 consolidation happens. Staten Island supports it in part because we believe, uh, as was promised, that the new greater New York City would be used to leverage the debt the city could leverage 
to build large bridges like the Brooklyn Bridge that was by then completed, the Manhattan Bridge that was by then under, under construction. So Staten Islanders thought like, hey, there's going to be a bridge in my future that the new city would, would incur debt to do. Years go by. Uh, actually, Haswell Green talks about a tunnel that, that, that starts by Mayor John Hyland connecting uh, my district and Justin's district. Never gets finished. They dig a hole. It stops. Uh, 60 years go by, roughly, before the Robert Moses set, the, the uh, Omar, uh, I forget the guy's name, the designer of the bridge. They come along and they design the, the uh, Verrazano Bridge. Now, the Verrazano Bridge was unlike the other bridges built like the city of Greater New York. Those bridges were leveraged with city debt and were frios. They were, they were free, and they're still frios to the city of New York. Uh, our bridge, the Verrazano Bridge, was given a toll because unlike the debt that was incurred to pay for the Brooklyn and Manhattan and all the other bridges along the, the huts out of the East River and Harlem River, our bridge was built specifically to incur debt in transportation revenue bonds that we could then leverage and pay for capital projects throughout the entire MTA's network. So our toll money pays for the construction and maintenance of subways and bus routes and, and, and all those sorts of things. That's why we have a toll to begin with. So then we fast forward a few years. We have this car culture on Staten Island. We, we never get the, the public transportation infrastructure that we were promised when we joined the city of New York. Uh, we're left with a, a pretty substantial car culture. And at some point, the ability to collect toll became so great that cars would queue up along the uh, west shore of the Verrazano Bridge and queue up well back into Staten Island. This is the 1970s. This is the 19 early like 80s. And car fumes are a thing, much bigger a thing than they are now. And Staten Islanders were just really pissed that they were inhaling the fumes from all the tractor trailers and cars that were waiting to go into Brooklyn. Guy Molinari, the congressman of the time, sort of a big figure in Staten Island political history, he gets the, the, the Reagan administration, the Congress to pass this law. And lo and behold, we are the one place in the country where we're to have a federal law requiring uh, one-way tolling. And I mean, I'll let, I'll let JB, the other JB, you know, handle what's going on with and how, how people get around it. But that's sort of the historical perspective of the, the problem from Staten Islanders' point of view. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that most people don't realize, and it, it drives them insane when they find out that that toll is, not only is it accounts for a very substantial portion of the MTA's total yearly revenue. But the toll helps subsidize the LIRR, Metro North. You know, so basically crossing over that bridge every day helps keep commuting affordable for our well-heeled neighbors in Long Island and Westchester and Connecticut and, and upstate, you know, which is sort of adds further insult to injury. And it also brings conversation. I always like to talk about the commuter tax that for 30 something years, uh, commuters shared the city's tax burden, uh, I think since 1966. Um, and then back in 99, the commuter tax was repealed. Um, Shout out to Shelly Silver, if you're listening from prison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so you have this situation of, of city makes it and state takes it. Uh, and it hasn't gone away. Um, what Joe, uh, you know, pointed to a little bit was was this myth, this mythical thing that uh, a lot of people still believe that once the bridge was quote unquote paid for, that the toll would be made free. And a couple of years ago, uh, for the anniversary of the bridge, 
Staten Island Advance did a big sort of investigative report on. This was big, by the way. This, you can't underestimate how big this report was uh, for, for those of you not Staten Islanders. Yeah, it was a huge deal because for you know everyone would say, ah, they always said that when that bridge was done being paid for, it was going to be free. And no, no one ever could find anyone that actually ever said this. So the, the advance finally went and, and did, did some research in their own archives and whatever else they could find. And sure enough, they found no evidence that anyone ever said that once the bridge was quote unquote paid off, that it would be free. And the, again, the reason, the reason they built the bridge was to use transportation revenue bonds from the revenues from commuters to pay for other shit. So right. like, it was never going to be free. Right, ever. So even to, to this check. day, even though the advance did this pretty exhaustive report, this big investigative uh, 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 article, People still don't believe it. They still don't believe it's true. Yeah, no, they said it was going to be free. But it's not. It's a cash cow. It's a cash cow for the entire state uh, because so much of that money goes to subsidizing other things. So um, the split tolling thing was interesting because we I first was approached about this, not from someone in my district or, or in Joe's district, but from folks on Canal Street and down sort of by the uh, the Holland Tunnel. We had folks come to us who were saying, you know, restoring split tolling like it was back in the day would help improve uh, traffic and congestion to Brooklyn and lower Manhattan because it would prevent trucks from doing what they call toll shopping, where they can enter New York City through Staten Island and then they dodge the tolls on the Hudson River Bridge and tunnel crossings going the other way. So uh, we're hopeful that that will be the desired effect because that's why uh, we're doing it. And we've also been battling with the slogans these days, I mean, slogans are sort of our downfall these days, but part of the, the issue has been the split tolling that people now, some people still think the way that they still believe that the bridge was supposed to be free. They now think that split tolling means they got to pay the full toll one way and the full toll the other way. Do, do the um, voice, though. Do, it, do it in the voice, please. <laughs> I got to pay 10 How much is the toll? I got to pay $20 one way, $20 going the other way. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like it was back when we were kids where it's 50% one way and 50% the other way. That's why a we, quick we question pay- right there. Quick yeah. question right there. Because, because for people who don't take the bridge regularly, I know y'all know, of course, right? So it's $19 round trip. If you're paying cash, it's twelve twenty four. If you're paying with an easy pass, unless you live in Staten Island, yeah. in which case it's like uh, it, it's train fare. It's two seventy five. Like, well, no, is, it's, it's uh, definitely not train fare. No, no, it's definitely not train fare. <laughs> um, Maybe a seller, a seller fare. I mean, this uh, is another issue is that for us, the fight has always been that a bridge has two sides, and Southern Brooklyn and and Staten Island are are inextricably linked. Families, work, hospitals, businesses, all that stuff. It's it's our backyard, you know, and, and vice versa. And the fact that um, we've never been able to successfully get a break for folks on my side of the bridge is very frustrating because it's not, you know, people don't only go to Staten Island to go to the mall. They go to Staten Island because they have family there. They work there. They go to doctor's appointments there. They visit their grandmother there. Um, you know, so it's it's frustrating because it's always, for our, for our side of the bridge, it's because... In Brooklyn, you have other ways to get around. That's fine. But some people are also going to Staten Island every day. So that's and always we, been a big fight. By the way, 
we want Brooklyn to get the discount as well. I mean, there's nothing that Staten Island with its, you know, six members of the state legislature would want than a borough with 20 or 30 members of the state legislature being tied to the same government expense. So we're hopeful. We want that. Right. So that's always been, that's always been a beef. And I think that uh, for some folks, getting split tolling done was a huge deal. But I think, I think a lot of folks hope that we could also get some sort of equity, you know, for folks coming and going. So hopefully that would be the next fight, but it comes down to a subsidy that right now nobody has because we're broke, you know? So that's why doing split tolling, which is revenue neutral, it wasn't a heavy lift. Last, uh, last bridge question here. How much of this is different with the advent of, uh, you know, easy pass? Like there's basically no one paying cash anymore. And any concerns now about having lines potentially building up on both sides? I know Joe sent that great picture from 1967 and like Operation <laughs> Breathe Free with the mess. But now we have all electronic tolling. And, and one of the one of the good things that, that I have to give the Cuomo administration credit for is, is bringing all electronic tolling to the Verrazano Bridge and the Thruway and, and elsewhere in between. I mean, so there's no reason for you to stop. That said, you know, where cash lanes still exist. I always wondered like who the psychopaths are that like still bring like cash in their car when they could have something that's a more convenient, easy pass and be cheaper for you to use. It just, it never made any sense to me. God bless you if you still did, but it's a moot point now. So if you don't have easy pass, you're going to pay the all electronic tolling. You're actually still going to have the same experience. Just you're going to pay more. Right. So one reason not to go to Staten Island in my view and South Brooklyn for that matter is that, you know, most of the map now is yellow. According to the mayor's press briefing today, the virus rates seem to be significantly higher. And just looking at this from, from, from the outside, right, it does seem like a lot of this corresponds to where Trump support is higher, to where people are more skeptical of wearing masks. What's going on and what should be going on as these numbers move in a disturbing direction? It- if you would have asked that question, uh, you know, 10 days ago, you would have had a different answer because it was Elmhurst and elsewhere in Queens. Uh, mm-hmm. That was a problem. Last week, it was the Bronx. That was a problem. I assure you, nobody's voting for Donald Trump in the Bronx, maybe Ruben Diaz Sr. Uh, but other than Ruben Diaz Sr., I don't think anyone in the Bronx is voting for Donald Trump. Um, I don't know. The Bronx is a big place, very much including Morris Park. So I could... know. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. There's definitely some Republicans up there and, and they're great people and you know, I'm glad to know them. But it's it's not really that. I mean, you know, is there certainly fatigue of COVID on Staten Island? 100%. But look at the total number of cases. I mean, we're, we're having a spike in, in Tonville area code 10307. There's 28 cases there right now. And I don't want to downplay those cases. But when we're talking about zip codes around the city, there are other zip codes that, that are in far more dense areas with far more cases that we're not treating as some sort of a panic. You know, am I concerned? Yeah, I don't want the case numbers to go up. Am I concerned also that a lockdown might happen and some of our restaurants will close? I'm actually more concerned about that, just given uh, what we've seen. Um, but, you know, I, I think it is really a testament to some fatigue uh, from COVID that we're experiencing on Staten Island uh, and, and in most of the city, really. Yeah, I think, look, I think the, the good news here is that we've learned a lot since March. At least I hope we have. We know what works. We know what everyone should be doing. You know, that, that's why it's frustrating when, when I hear folks talking about education or outreach. I mean, at this point, you know, everyone knows what to do. It's not a matter of, are we telling people? If you don't know what to do by now, you're just, for whatever reason, you're just not doing it. I think we have faster testing now. We have hospitals that know how to treat this thing. 
We're better at managing it. And hopefully we have a vaccine on the way. So at least this time around, there's a, there's a, a, a sliver of a light at the end of the tunnel. I think we still need to take action because we can't get to a point where so many people are infected that we don't have the workers we need to run the city. Uh, we don't have you know uh, beds in our hospitals or EMTs that are EMS workers that are working 30 plus hours overtime a week to keep up with the 911 calls. But I think it's important. What I've been saying since day one is people need reasons and not rules. And we need to make sure that all the actions that city and state are taking are based on actual data and take into account all the things that we've learned since the, the dark days of March and April. I think that we should be able to close the areas where we see spread happening based on data and, and, and where it's happening in real time. And I think that the governor and the mayor, like they used to say back in school, they have to show their work. They have to show us how they're getting to these decisions because look, uh, as any elected official is going to tell you, public health, public safety are our number one priority. Um, but but trust is very important. And people want to understand where these decisions are coming from. They want to see the data behind these decisions. And I think then you'll have much more faith in the directives that you're getting. You know, I think, look, we all want this to be as, as painless as possible, literally and figuratively. But COVID, we might be done with COVID, but COVID is not done with us just yet. So we got to use our heads here. As we are hearing the pitter-patter of what I assume is... I was so uh, nervous. I was little, like, can they hear this? As we're hearing the pitter-patter of right little here. little Borelli feet, um, it does make me wonder how many Borelli feet are going to be in the household for Thanksgiving this year. Oh, yeah, year. there's going to be 11 of us. Uh, and, I mean, a lot of people are really angry on Twitter, but my parents, the, the oldest people that will be at our Thanksgiving celebration, are here in my house now because the governor and mayor have shut down Catholic schools and now they're needed here to watch my kids anyway. You know, I, I think those are the kind of rules, like Justin said, guidelines, um, you know, guidelines are okay. Recommendations, things like that are all fine. Suggesting people limit their activities is one thing, but to make a hard and fast rule, uh, I, I think that's something that A, is unenforceable. B, is not nuanced enough to be practical. I mean, some houses are bigger than others. Someone with a large house can have a dozen people. Someone with a studio apartment can have fewer. Um, ironically, those same 12 people, just for argument's sake, can go to an indoor dining restaurant on Thanksgiving and all sit four at a table, but separate. I mean, this, these are the kind of rules that just don't make sense to people whatsoever. So my plan was to have 11 people. We're still going to have 11 people. And it's just unfortunate that we've descended into these rules. And I think what Justin said about trust has a lot to do with it as well. We saw last week, just last week, like four days ago, the Cuomo administration and the de Blasio administration, whoever the inspectors were representing, but they shut down a woman's business, a single mom of kids, while at the very same moment, people just a mile away were dancing and singing Prospect Park and elsewhere around the city, celebrating the election results. That erodes trust in the community. So when Big Tough Cuomo tells us you can't have more than 10 people or, or, or de Blasio tells us you can't have more than 10 people in your house, it just sounds silly to people who, number one, are not flaunting the law for the sake of flaunting the law. They're flaunting the law because, like me, my family's 11 people. We're not 10 people. We're 11. And that's who we're going to hang out with on Thanksgiving. I have never... Re re admired Cuomo more than when he said, if you really love someone, don't see them on Thanksgiving. I just felt like I love and, all and of you. And by the way, by the way, Harry, he has, he has uh, three daughters, all right? Some of their boyfriends may be there, but in the governor's mansion, and there's some a of them may be in Canada. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that, that one. Yeah, that guy's gone. But there's there's staff members in in the Eagle Street Mansion. So like, there's probably going to be more than ten people in the governor's own residence on Thanksgiving serving him dinner. Uh, and I'm wondering to see if he follows his own rules as well as his brother. What I'm curious about is going back to this summer when we had the George Floyd protests and uh, de Blasio explained that those were different from the public health regulations he'd had because of the historical impact of the moment that lasted over the summer. There was an echo of that in the celebrations after Biden's victory was, uh, you know, the news called it. And it does seem like there's sort of a lot of complaints that there's some sort of double or politicized standard for who's allowed to do what. And that, that, I mean, that's- uh, Harry, you had three days ago, de Blasio taking selfies with random people in celebrations. I pulled up the New York Times article so everyone can check my facts, right? It's rollicking NYC celebration for Biden's win well into the night. It's a photo spread by the New York Times. There's 25, 30 people in this photo spread celebrating without masks. Now, I'm okay with that, right? People, I think, outside may not be as high risk than someone, say, indoors. But you can't pretend like people going crazy in the streets, partying, singing, and dancing is fine. But then three days later, we're all going to die, and Joe Borelli's killing everyone because he's having his uncle come to his dinner table on Thanksgiving. I saw other people, blue checkmark Twitter today, going crazy. On one guy in in the Staten Island ferry terminal, who's a the guy's a tool. He's a total tool. He's inside a mass transit hub, and he was given a mask, and the picture shows him brushing it off. That's just dumb. We can't forget the basics. But like, I wish someone would spend as much time just criticizing some of the other things we see all over the city as biased and double standards. We can find out. The big mm-hmm. difference here, and, and Joe is making his own point. I mean, the big difference here, though, is that you're talking about indoor and outdoor. Yep. So you saw protests over the summer. You saw people out in the street for whether it was Trump or whether it was Biden. Um, and the out the one thing it seems that science we all agree on is that outdoors is just safer. And, and when you when you start talking about indoor, that's where you get into trouble. And even if it's people outside, if they're not wearing a mask, they should be wearing a mask. But if they're not, clearly it doesn't have the same effect as when you start bringing people inside. So do an exercise, do an exercise. There was a Trump rally on Staten Island on October 3rd. Admittedly, people there weren't wearing masks. The majority were. I mean, I think the reporters there said the majority of people were wearing masks. A big chunk of them weren't. But New York One had a story the day before suspecting that this event was going to be a super spreader event. And the day of the event, it wasn't about the event and who spoke and would they say it was about how coronavirus is present at Trump rally. That's just not the same standard. This is New York One. About. That's not the same standard New York One gave uh, just last week again. And last week, we actually saw numbers rising. Like it was, You have to put it in the context. Like Four weeks ago, five weeks ago, we weren't seeing the same case hike as we are now. And yet, despite that happening, you saw a, a vastly different uh, uh, coverage of the yeah, celebration. I think a lot of it has to do with, with, with the weather. I think we've gotten lucky because we've had decent weather. Once the weather starts getting shitty and cold and people start coming inside, that's when you have a problem. I think we're all in denial if we think that New York, which is the, the global city, the tutti global cities, if the rest of the country... Is, is not staring down the barrel of a second wave that we were just somehow going to go 
you know, untouched. It was, it just, it's just not going to happen, right? So I think we have to be prepared for that. I think that some of us, we're going to argue over the margins and stuff, but I think that this is the second wave that they've been warning us about. And, and it's, it's here, we're looking at it now. And I think that the indoor, the 10 PM thing that they're doing now. We just can't ignore the the, the clear bias. Every time Trump had a rally. Yes. Trump, by the way, uh, probably less than responsibly, let's say, wasn't encouraging people to wear masks. But every time Trump had a rally, it was always in the context of COVID spreading. And that was in outdoors as well. Now, again, we have a similar situation here in New York City. Which, which doesn't get a peep out of the mayor and governor. The actual number of cases rises before and after that event. And now everyone's pissed because I said, well, maybe they shouldn't regulate how many people we have. Running I have a question. Rallies. I have kept to killing people. Fair, though, Hold on one second. We got to pivot. We got to pivot. <laughs> Trump's rallies, Trump's rallies kept, kept, kept killing people. He kept doing actual super spreader events yeah. um, with, with, with people close around him. His daughter and his son-in-law have just withdrawn from the school they were at. Apparently, it was the other parents were so distressed, they, they weren't wearing masks. There were a whole bunch of these inside. And so, obviously, this trickles down to how people perceive Trump supporters doing this, because that's an exceptional, uh, I don't give a fuck message from the, uh, from the top. I also don't think that, I mean, look, but I think Election Day was, was a week ago. So, I don't think that people that were having a party in the street on Saturday when, when, when they announced that Biden had won, there's no way that that's, those are the folks that are sending the numbers up. Right but, but when the cases go up in three days from now, will, will you say the opposite? A lot of people would say the question was intent, right? Like are drunk 20 somethings having beers in Greenwich village and celebrating Biden the same thing when they're like, even if their mask isn't on, right. Is that the same thing as people saying, I don't want to wear a mask because I think this is government overreach and purposefully doing that. I don't know the answer to that question, but what I would say, especially about Staten Island is what we saw in March and April and the lack of public access to healthcare. So like there weren't a lot of hospitals, there wasn't a lot of testing stations Everyone was woefully underprepared, especially our mayor in this city, but we were really underprepared to help Staten Island. Um, I'm not going to lie. I got I to gotta push back a little bit um, because really we never had an HHC hospital. Uh, our two private hospital services stepped up very well. They ended up taking charge of sort of the, the pop-up hospitals that were built and, and they started to staff them. And we have like CVS and Rite Aid and, and you know, neighborhood pharmacies and CityMD. I mean, they're, they're testing hundreds and hundreds of people per day. So, I mean, HHC is doing a great job. They're in Conference House Park right down the block from me now. Um, but I, I, I don't think we really were that short of testing uh, for any longer period than anywhere else in the city. I think, look, I think that COVID, look, COVID doesn't give a shit if w- whether you believe it's real or not, or whether you think masks work or not. COVID doesn't care about whether you're defiant about it or not. I mean, I think that's the thing. I think that all of this requires such a insanely high level of shared sacrifice that some people are just not accustomed to or okay with. And I think that when some folks just completely flout you know, no one wants to wear a mask. No one wants to, you know, not be able to have 30 people over for Thanksgiving like we used to have and all this stuff. What I say all the time is that it's not like any of us can say, well, the last time we had a global pandemic, you know, things were back to normal by now. So what the hell is going on here, right? We're, we're still in completely uncharted territory. So I think with some folks, what I'm seeing, certainly like over the summer, 
when people would start calling my office and saying, look, you know, there's too many people outside that restaurant or that bar, it's because it creates this resentment where it's like, well, I've been following the rules and doing the right thing. How you were probably there, Justin. Who when both of you guys say it's a lack of like outreach and education, we heard the same thing from Cornblah when we interviewed him about the Orthodox community in Borough Park. What so if it's an issue of messaging and oh, I don't think I don't think it is though. I'm saying education time. I, I, agree, I agree. Education time is over. The, go you going going the city going around now and telling people to wear a mask. Get the fuck out of here. It's everyone knows what to do by now. Come on. Like if you need to know, you know what to do. If you're not doing it, it's it's for some other reason. Either you don't believe it or you think you already had it or whatever the hell you believe. It's not because you don't know what to do. So closing questions here. Fast one, slightly longer one. If we hit 3% rolling average citywide, should the schools close? I mean, I think the schools are the only thing that are working right now. Um, I, you know, The amount of messages that I got today from personal friends and people who have my personal cell phone number or on Facebook, not talking about phone calls to my office, but the people, the parents who are panicking about schools being closed when there's, you know, no signs of, of cases at their schools, people are losing their minds. Yeah, I'm yeah I mean, I get it. And I understand. I mean, they feel like this is the one thing that's working. They feel they feel it's safe. They feel their teachers are doing a great job. They feel that if there are cases that the, the schools are reacting very quickly and making sure everyone is safe. So they feel like, what the heck is going on? Like, if you if you can prove the data that. Um, the schools are a problem and, and a part of why the number, like I was like this morning, I went to have, I went to have breakfast with a friend, right? I went to the restaurant, the guy took my temperature and I had to write down my name or whatever. So, you know, if something happened, fine. Okay. So now the mayor and the governor are talking about, we got to shut down restaurants early at 10 PM. Okay, fine. At, show me the data that that is why the numbers are going up. You have my information. You took my temperature. I've never got a single phone call that said, Hey, Justin, you were at this place yesterday and someone got sick here, but, but that those are the dots that they're connecting. And I think people would just feel better about all of this stuff. If there was data that backed it up. And if there is, yeah, and, show and the, it testing, to us. the testing and tracing is not working whatsoever. I mean, we had cases that anecdotally, uh, you know, we heard we're related to, uh, in one case, a dancing school where a number of girls that were in this dancing school were, were not obeying the rules. They were not wearing masks. They were doing the school indoors. And so we asked the testing and tracing corps, well, obviously, you guys know about the dancing school. And they looked at me like I had three holes in my head. And like, it's like, but if you're not figuring out that stuff, what are you actually doing? And those are the people that are actually just out there handing out masks. But about schools, the, the answer is twofold. If a number of kids are infected with COVID or staff in one school building, close the school building. That, that's just logical. We're not going to send people back to the building who, who likely are exposed to COVID. But since May, we've had a number of you know, bona fide peer-reviewed medical journal articles written from all over the world, from the U.S., uh, from Europe, from, from Asia. None of them have indicated that schools are in any way more likely to spread COVID than the community spread that might be happening in that community anyway. So, like, that's why, like, I mean, even uh, to quote the Times twice in one in one podcast, I mean, <laughs> even the New York Times is like coming around to, to, to this position recently where they're saying, OK, what is the science showing schools are, are dangerous? And the reality is there just isn't that science that exists. So should schools close? Absolutely not. 
Should schools close if a number of kids are infected in the building? Of course, that, that's just logical. But I think there's some irreparable harm being done to kids who are not being in school. Uh, you know, Mayor Bowser of D.C., I was saying this to someone else, I would never agree with her under any circumstance normally. She did a press conference about two weeks ago talking about how her kindergartners are reading at a 33% lower level than they were last year. That's really harmful when you're talking about five-year-olds and their development. And she's saying schools have to reopen. You have school districts like Dallas, Miami, large city school districts that have reopened. Uh, they've allowed kids to stay home who want to stay home, but they've, they've allowed any kid who wants to be there, be there. And we're just not seeing the cases. Yes, I'm sure someone's going to fact check me and put an anecdotal thing of a teacher in somewhere who gets sick and dies. No question that happens. But we're talking about making decisions that are good for society based on the data we have. And we just don't have that that schools are super special. Just speaking of the data, uh, that Mayor Bowser account of the drop was actually misattributed by the Washington Post, and they had to correct that. And clearly, this is impacting how kids are doing in school, especially in the earlier grades. Uh, but that was actually less dramatic than as it was initially circulated, at least uh, according to her accounting. I'd add that like Mayor Bowser, uh, just speaking as a Mario player, just I, I can't hear that name. Respectfully, oh, great name. without cracking up a little. So closing question here. We've been dealing with this since February, since March. The governor wrote a book. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a real man and I beat this virus. Um, the Andrew Cuomo story. The mayor says recently, in, in recent weeks, after saying things are great here, hey, this is really bad. If, every, if we don't all do stuff now, and he's not all that clear on the stuff or what he's going to do, we're in big, big trouble. So what are we looking at coming into this winter? And if we learned anything, are we better prepared than we were for that first wave? Well, I, I'm not sure we are. If we know all this information and yet our first knee-jerk reaction is to lock things down. I mean, that seems to be the default method of coping with this. And I think that's sort of de facto evidence that we're not playing this any smarter than we were in April or May, despite the, the availability and, and discovery of treatments, despite the vaccine that's that's soon to be widely disseminated. I would say we, we haven't learned a lesson, at least evidenced by our elected officials. I, I would I would disagree. I mean, I think we're in a very different place. I mean, you know, last March when we were arguing over whether we should cancel the St. Patrick's Day parade. We still weren't talking about wearing masks. People were not wearing masks yet. Um, the hospitals really didn't know how to treat this thing. The testing was abominable. Have we made you know light years of advances since then? No, but I do think we're in a, a better place. I think we're better at managing this. And I think, again, there's, there is a light at the end of the tunnel this time. I think that last time in the really dark days of March and April, there was just no end in sight. And we didn't know what was going to happen. There was no playbook for this. You know, and I think now with the second wave really at our doorstep, we have a better idea of what we're looking at at the very least. And, you know, we'll, we need to remain vigilant. You know, there's no silver bullet for this thing. And I think that, again, it goes back to that shared sacrifice that that's how a virus works, right? You're all in this together, whether you like it or not. And, and I do want to believe that we're better prepared this time around. We have sort of figured out that Indoor gathering is really where you start getting into a dicey area, you know, no matter how many people you're dealing with. And that's really the concern. And, you know, 
I, I think I think we have to be hopeful, but we have to be realistic. And I think people, number one, people want to hear from public health officials, uh, epidemiologists, and doctors. They don't want to hear from politicians, and, and that's a matter of trust. And that's something that we're going to have to work on restoring. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. A follow-up episode could be whose district has better pizza. I would like to, maybe that could be like a, a DVD extra. <laughs> we take this, yeah, let's, let's take this on the road. Certainly, let's do that. And, and sorry about my kids. Just be thankful I didn't go into like a Homer Simpson, like yelling at the top of my lungs. To, to shut up I'm up just surprised Harry's kids didn't, uh, didn't make a, an appearance. They're out, they're out. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Appreciate right. it. Right. Right. Thank you. F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guests this week, Joe Borelli, Councilman of New York City's 51st District in Staten Island, and Justin Brannan, Councilman of South Brooklyn's 43rd District in New York City. I, Alex Brooklyn, am the executive producer. Your hosts are Harry Siegel and Christina Greer, and we are mixed and mastered consistently with fantastic precision by Adam Chimera. Please give us good reviews on various podcast players, and uh, we will see you next week with some cool sounds from the waterways. If you're interested in knowing what that means, I guess you're just going to have to listen to next week as well as this week. And if you've made it this far into the outro, I mean, you're a diehard fan, so definitely tune in next week.